well, good evening or good night, as the case may be. This is the first time ever that I've been asked to preach at a midnight communion. Uh, it feels very late, but we are waiting to celebrate something very special. Incidentally, I'm glad to see that nobody's sitting on the windowsill. Uh, so Paul once preached in a crowded room with space only left for the latecomers on the windowsill. And he preached on and on for so long that about midnight, someone dozed off and fell out of the window. But I don't suppose that will happen, and the floor is quite comfortable, I understand. Classic FM's number one Christmas carol begins, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Saviour's birth. And that, of course, is what we are getting ready to celebrate. And we have had two familiar passages from the Bible read to us. And the trouble with Bible passages that are read to us every year at many services is that they become so familiar we don't always see anything new in them as time goes by. But here's something new. It is, of course, uh, 2,000 or more years old, but I just noticed it or focused on it for the first time a couple of weeks ago when I was getting ready. And it's verse 4 of the first reading from Isaiah 9-4, where it refers to the day of Midian's defeat. This refers to a famous battle, which happened quite a few years after the time of Moses and Joshua, when they conquered the Promised Land. But on the other hand, quite a few centuries before the time of Isaiah, whose uh, book the words appear in. And it was the battle where Gideon led the Israelites against invaders from Midian. Now, Gideon was an obscure man to start with. Uh, he was only just sure that God had chosen him uh, to lead the army of Israel against the Midianite invaders. It was Gideon who famously put out a sheep's fleece one night so that God could miraculously confirm by making sure that the fleece stayed dry when everything else got rained on, confirmed that it really was God who was telling him to lead the army against the Midianites. And then later in this same campaign, uh, when thousands of people had come to fight with him, God told Gideon to send nearly all of them home again. And so it was only with 300 men that he went and confronted the vast army of the Midianites and all their allies. It was a huge victory. And what does Isaiah think God thinks of it? He writes, As in the day of Midian's defeat, you, God, have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. It was God's victory, his gift to Gideon and his people, but it was God's victory that he achieved uh, on that day. And now, like that victory, there's going to be a new one, Isaiah says. What does he think is going to happen in this future battle? Are the Air Force going to come and drop bombs on the new Midianites? Will there be thunderbolts from heaven to sort out the invaders? No, it writes, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. And that poses the question, what sort of weapon is a baby in a fight? We'll leave that hanging for a minute and move to the New Testament passage, where Luke tells us about the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the promised son. 
Christmas was, of course, not Christmas until Jesus was born. The organised festival wasn't set up until many years later, and many of the things we associate with Christmas now are even later still. Uh, it became popular in Victorian times, in the time of Prince Albert. And indeed, the uh, lights which festoon all the hedges and doorways and houses nowadays are, of course, late imports in this century from China. The usual Christmas films that come out every Christmas are, in fact, products of the 21st century. Now, when did you last hear someone say, I'm fed up with all this commercial stuff and the advertising and all that, all the general bother of it all, I want to get back to the real Christmas. Well, before we all chuck out Christmas as it now is, we should just remember that the celebration is good. Things happen in the course of Christmas celebrations. Perhaps we make the effort to remake contact with people we used to know but have lost contact with in the present difficult circumstances or have drifted apart. Or we honour relatives with gifts or visits. Or we hold parties for our friends. And all these things, and the celebration generally are good, if the thing that's being celebrated is good, and provided, of course, it is within our means, within the limits of our time, money and effort. And behind this celebration, of course, is the birth of a baby. A child or baby born to win a battle like Gideon's Battle of Old, where the power and purposes of God prevailed. So what was this famous birth like? Not ever having had a baby myself, I need to go on what I observe happening in other families where this happens. Everyone seems to want to cuddle with a new baby. New babies bring joy and delight. All the sisters and cousins and aunts and everybody else comes around and uh, the mother says, Do you want to hold the baby? I said, oh yes. Oh, isn't he cute? He looks just like his dad. And the Holy Family was, in most ways, just completely ordinary, just like ours. In this particular house, the man of the house had a job, carpentry in this case. When he arrived at his ancestral town of Bethlehem, he presumably met with other relatives who had always lived there, or perhaps some other ones who were also having to come home like he did. I wonder, perhaps having a carpenter come to their stay would be seen as a golden opportunity. Uh, Joseph, um, while you're here, um, could you just find a few minutes to stop this table wobbling? The family also had social fabric. We know, for instance, about Mary's cousin Elizabeth, who had also just had a baby a little while before. Mary had gone to stay with her. Perhaps, I wonder, to hide from her neighbours back home that she was pregnant but still unmarried. Anyway, be that as it may, while there, Mary probably learned quite a lot hands-on about practical mothering when Elizabeth's baby, John the Baptist, was born. Like normal families, there were doubtless ups and downs and hardships sometimes, like having to go on a long journey on a donkey while nearly ready to give birth, for example. And of course, all families have ancestry 
and places they come from. Now, I never met two of my grandparents because they died before I was born. And I had eight great-grandparents, and I know nothing at all about five of them, not even their name. My family isn't famous and doesn't have a lot of documentation, but this family was descended from King David, who had been a boy shepherd around the Bethlehem area centuries before, and this was the place where this family belonged. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Well, the shepherds who rocked up later also descended from King David and had always lived in the area. Were they cousins, distant cousins, you know, 14 cousins, seven times removed or whatever, and related? Well, we now all live in the wrong country, the wrong century to have been there. But I bet we all wish we had been. We're just going to have to imagine it, aren't we? Perhaps that's one of the reasons why crib scenes, models, pictures, films, nativity plays, all those things are so widespread. Is it really only two years since Elizabeth, our curate, organised an exhibition of crib scenes here? As far as I remember, and I I'm still remember being amazed about it at the time, there were around a hundred or so Three, three years. Three years, good grief. Look, it's But was it a hundred or was it more? Um, there were 89. 89. More than I ever expected. It was a complete surprise. And they were all different sorts, weren't they? China figures, wooden figures, knitted figures. Abstract ones like in the picture we had right at the beginning of the service. Marketry figures, and more besides. Now, on the screen we've had some pictures of crib seeds, uh, and uh, I searched for them on the web. There's no shortage of them, so let's have a look at a few. So this one to start with is a typical one. Uh, it's uh, got a certain style to it. And there's the usual people there, uh, the usual animals that are in the stable, and there's Jesus in the middle holding court with all those people. But notice that they all seem to be white people like us. Uh, perhaps this is actually made in Britain or Germany or some such place, I'm not sure which, but we tend to make pictures with people who look like us. Next one. Ah, now here we are in Africa. So in Africa, people imagine people just like us, and just like us, they're people with black skin, aren't they? And also, they're surrounded by a different selection of animals. So there's rhinoceri, and an elephant, and a zebra, um, and something that's brown with white spots on it. I don't quite identify something red with black spots on. And there's a person at the back with a basket of fruit on their head. Uh, and maybe you can see a few more in there as well. Again, they're imagining Jesus coming to a family like theirs with people like them round about in their scenery. And here's another one. This is night time now. Uh, and again, it's white people and we've dressed up the shepherds a little more in this and we've got the wise men there as well, I think. Uh, and the manger set up to emphasise a feeding trough in a stable, if that in fact is the right building that they were really in. And the next one, please. Um, okay. Um, go back, go one? back, please. Oh yes, we'll stop there, because here's a Chinese one. Difference again, Chinese people obviously, Chinese scenery, out in the open air, no building at all, unless that's one at the far right I can't quite make out. And they brought a couple of children in, and no animals that I can see. Different culture, people like us. And I think there's one more again, isn't there? And this one's a fun one. 
I hope you can see enough detail on that. We're trying to be realistic here. It's a, it's a picture rather than a set of models. Uh, and uh, there's the camels uh, and uh, sheep and so on, shepherds, the wise men coming in oriental dress. But if you look closely, there's a chicken, or hen rather, roosting in the rafters with a nice bed of straw, and there's some birds that make their nest there, and there's even a mouse climbing around the rafters. Uh, perhaps it wasn't that homely a place uh, to come and give birth. I also looked for a South American one, but don't worry, it's not there, because the only one I found looked a bit uh, sinister, so I decided to leave it out. Now, all these scenes can't all be right at the same time. We know this, don't we? Jesus came as a baby in a real place at a real time, and he looked like something, probably Jewish, most probably, but he came for everyone. And so it's valid for us also imagine him coming to our culture, our house even, and looking like us. And here's another thing about him really coming, flesh and blood, a touchable, cuddleable baby. We have, over these last several years, been trying very hard not to actually meet people, in case we catch something off them, or worse still, give it to them. There are some exceptions to that rule, of course. But generally, instead of going to business meetings, we've been meeting on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or some other package that lets you talk to people and see them over the internet. And it has to be admitted, it's a pretty good way of having a meeting, or a not meeting rather. And it does save travel time and petrol and pollution and expense and so on. And at home we've been doing the same thing, haven't we? Instead of visiting grandma. Zoom or FaceTime or something keeps us in touch, but really it's not the same as holding and cuddling the newborn grandchild, or snuggling up on a sofa to read a story together, or playing on grandma's carpet, or gossiping in the kitchen while you make tea, or going to the pub together with a football. And that's why Jesus didn't just project an image of himself on the sky, or appear on something like a Zoom screen or something like that. He really came to be really with us, touchable, feelable. He came as a person and lived in a human body like we had, and went on to do lots of physical, practical things of the sort that we do. Because our ordinary lives matter. And while we're thinking about the fact that our ordinary lives matter, let's just briefly, because we don't want anyone falling out the window, just think through half a dozen things that Jesus did in the world that we inhabit. Well, soon after he was born, Herod tried to kill him, so his family had to scarper to Egypt, and they were refugees for a while. He grew up honouring his parents. He had a childhood uh, and grew up uh, getting bigger all the time and learning to eat with a than if they used nice and false, but you know. And as he grew up, he learned a trade, something to do as an adult. Perhaps he was a carpenter as well. Learned the scriptures as well. He uh, was reputed to be a rabbi eventually when he finally came to his time of ministry. Doubtless he was a wedding guest on numerous occasions, joining in the celebration, rejoicing, dancing, drinking wine and eating a feast with people. Famously, a wedding at Cana in Galilee that we remember every time we have a wedding service. He met lepers. They were required to socially distance, so he healed them so that they could go home. He met an adulteress. 
So he rescued her from the mob who were going to stone her. She was morally adrift, but he gave her a new start so she could go home. He met a rich man who was lost in his wealth and counselled him about how to find his way again. He met a blind man who was going to get lost because he was blind and couldn't see and healed his sight. When his friend Lazarus died, he wept over the grave, partly because his friend was dead, like we might do if our friend is dead, and because the women who were his sisters and his friends also were upset about it, he wept with them all. He wept over Jerusalem as a whole, because the establishment there didn't recognise the opportunity, the once-in-creation opportunity that was in front of them. Like us, when they are stuck in him, he bleeds on the cross. And he engages now with each and all of us, wherever we might be, whatever our situation is, because to him, we all, each of us, matter. Well, we were not there on that holy night, and so we do just have to imagine it and manage it and get over the fact that we weren't there. But really, who was it who said, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age? Who was it who said, this cup in the new covenant in my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me? This is the special day in the year when we remember him, focusing particularly on the fact that his birth is proof that we all matter. And remembering him, we do as invited, to eat and drink wine in his memory. So, come to his table. Let us eat and drink, not because tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink and rejoice that we all matter to him, and that he invites us all to come and eat and drink with him.